name is Shandy Chernow, and you're listening to the Shandyland podcast. I have for you today, Dr. John James, who is a longtime allergist specializing in pediatric food allergy, and he's also the president and founder of FACES, which is Food Allergy Consulting and Education Services. I do love a good, uh, a good, what's the word for that? Not anagram. Acronym. Acronym. Thank you. Lord, I can't find any of my words this morning. Dr. James, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to talk to you. Thank you for having me today. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, of course. So not only have you been in practice or were you in practice for 25 years dealing with food allergy patients and diagnosis and all that fun stuff, but you suffer from some food allergic stuff yourself. Tell me all about that. And was that part of what led you into this specialty? I really, I really kind of led into the specialty with my family. I have a strong family history of asthma, food allergy, eczema, and I had eczema as a kid. I didn't really know about this food allergy issue until I was during really during my fellowship in Baltimore uh, in in really the early 90s. And it's called food protein induced enterocolitis syndrome, uh, otherwise known as FPIs. And it took a long time for this diagnosis to really come to light. And this was really back in the time when we didn't know a lot about FPIs. And I knew that I had, had problems with certain types of shellfish mollusks, so scallops, clams, and oysters, and I would get these delayed reactions. And uh, and that's kind of what, what uh, that was one of the reasons, I, but I'd already been in my fellowship then, so. All right, so then why the, like what was the family history and what, why the focus on food allergies? What's so interesting about it for you? Yeah, I I think for my mother and a couple of sisters have peanut allergy and just the so just these reactions, they weren't just like, you know, a high reaction, but I mean, really severe reactions, skin symptoms, intestinal symptoms, and anaphylaxis. So it was, you know, those are not things to just brush away. I mean, these are serious reactions. We know this, and this has been been more and more uh, emphasis has been placed on food allergies and anaphylaxis in the last decade or so. So when I was looking at the different areas of medicine I wanted to go into, I looked at a lot of things. I wanted to to you know, be able to make an impact in areas where I really felt like I knew some things about personally, but also I could really delve in and learn about and get be sort of on the cutting edge of some of these things and be able to. And things have changed so dramatically in my uh, you know thirty years of of allergy practice. I mean, things have really, really. Uh, if I look back and do go back periodically and look to see where we've come from and where we're going. Yeah, no doubt. We see that all the time, you know, all the different changes that are that are coming through. You have now started a consulting and education services practice. Tell me about that faces. Yeah, so I was in a part of my career where I was wanting to cut back, sort of come down or ratchet down in my clinical, sort of the routine, seeing, being in the clinic every day. And I wanted to, I've always been interested in education from even before I went into my allergy fellowship. And I've, I've been involved in the American Academy of Pediatrics in the American Board of Allergy and Immunology. I, I like doing these things. So I was trying to figure out what am I gonna do? I don't wanna stop working completely. And I knew that I could make an impact or contri- make contributions in education. So I wanted to be able to develop protocols, to write articles, to do podcasts, do webinars, to do go speak to groups, family groups, patient groups, do national meetings, which I still do all of those things, but I wanted to sort of have it in 
be able to direct it myself now. I've worked for a lot of other people, but I wanted to have some control about what I wanted to do, how much I wanted to work, take some jobs, maybe turn some jobs away, and kind of put my energy to where I thought I could have the most benefit for patients and patient care. So I I sort of mapped out a lot of things, had a big whiteboard filled with all kinds of things. And I, I thought, well, maybe I could work for some groups like FAIR, which is Food Allergy Research Education, the mm-hmm. Asthma and Allergy Foundation of America, some local groups in Colorado that deal with allergy and asthma. And I said, well, how can I pull all that together where I could be a consultant, be, a, be available to do some things, let people know what I wanted to do. And they could come to me and say, hey, can you do this? I, I, I might be interested in that or other projects I wouldn't. Most of the things have that have been brought to me, I've taken because I'm new in this. I've only been doing it for a little over a year. And right. I'm working, you know, working my own time. And I can, tra- if I want to travel, I can, but COVID kind of impacted that. But, you know, I have a lot of flexibility. I have the interest there. I I know a lot of people around the country that do food allergy, allergy and asthma, just from my my being in the field for this long. And um, I had so many connections. I was able to draw from that and to be able to build build the business to where I am now it's get there I'm still very early very early in the in the uh, evolution of where I want to go so who are your kind of ideal um, organizations or groups that you're consulting for or that you would want to like what are the types of groups you mentioned a couple um, food allergy groups and and maybe some of the doctor groups in there is that really where you want your focus to be long term yeah, I, I really like the Asthma and Allergy Foundation because they not only have food allergy, they have asthma, they have eczema, they have drug reactions. And I, it gives me the chance to still stay in that those arenas and be able to, to keep my own um, education up in those areas and be able to, to provide expertise there. FAIR was just a, a natural for me to be able to, to consult with them. I've, I've approached other groups and I'm just trying to get, you know, build the networks now. Uh, locally, there was a uh, a food allergy uh, training uh, for like dietary training um, uh, or I want to say restaurants and things that deal with food allergies and how do they develop their protocols for their staff, train their staff. So mm-hmm. I got involved with some small projects with them. And I've had some people approach me just with very small projects. And I'm, I'm kind of I'm trying to stay a little bit bigger because I want to have continuing work with some of these groups. I've also been, I've had some, um, some people approach me about certain uh, like testing, like diagnostic testing uh, for allergy and for um, maybe formula, you know, for infant formulas that are, that are looking at ways to develop uh, for prevention of food allergy. So I'm, I'm willing, you know, I've, I've done a little bit of that, but I'm not, actively involved in those yet those are things that are probably going to come to me and I have to decide if I want to go that route or they things I can really do can I be an expert in that area I don't want to get into areas where they're way over my head and I don't want to not produce for them and do what I can you know I want to be make sure I can I can perform at the highest level uh with my capability right on I love it so um I want to talk a little bit about the FPIs uh if you will because it's been brought up, I think, once on the podcast. We haven't really delved into it. I see it relatively frequently in, you know, social media, allergy groups and such. And I'm curious, I don't, you know, for as much food allergy information as lives in my own head, right? Uh, it's something that I'm really unfamiliar with. So I can't imagine I'm the only one. Tell me, I, I know that you said that the, the 
words food protein induced enterocolitis syndrome thank you <laughs> i got it i got the first half so tell everybody mouthful. what that looks like i mean i i see you know there's a ton of moms out there parents out there who have a tendency to kind of go to facebook groups to ask for medical advice and that's really, I don't, you know, 753 doctors haven't been able to diagnose my child. And that this is where FPIs comes into play all the time, right? Oh, you might want to ask about this. What does it look like? How might somebody figure it out? Why is the diagnosis so hard? What's it like? Tell me all the things. Okay. And, and that, all those things you said are understandable because it's not a disease that's been known about many, many decades. It's really since in really in my lifetime, an allergy, it's really come it's really come to more, we've come to understand it better. So it is, it is a, it is a food allergy. It's not in the same group as like a peanut allergy or egg allergy, because it's a different mechanism. It's not that immediate IgE underlying reaction to a food protein. It's, it's thought to be a, a, it is known to be an immune mechanism, but it's not that type. It's, and it's, is the second thing is that it's a delayed reaction. So we'll just take, for example, with an infant who has F pies to milk, they or to a grain like um, rice or oat, they will eat the food, and then about usually two to four hours later, the symptoms will come on, and they're mostly intestinal, vom repetitive vomiting uh, that can lead to dehydration, lethargy, sometimes diarrhea, and it's it then they they resolve. They will resolve after that time frame. Usually, the treatment is more fluids, sometimes medicines to treat GI symptoms uh, like Prilosec or something like that. I'm sorry, for nausea, like ondansterone. Uh, it's not treated with epinephrine or antihistamines like your classic IgE-mediated food allergies. It usually can come on in infancy or childhood, and it can resolve after three to four years. The, the thing with me was that I was an adult when this came on and there wasn't a lot of literature about that or people know what, you know, what is, what's going on and we don't know about adults with F pies, but this has changed dramatically. Or any other it, food it, allergic it, disease, just for the record. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's, uh, in adults, it tends to be more shellfish oriented, like, like mollusks, like mm -hmm. scallops, clams, oysters, things like that. And in kids, it tends to be more cow milk, soy, grains, cereal grains. And again, in adults, it is, for me, it's usually I'll ingest, if I don't know that I'm, I haven't had a reaction in a long time, because I'm very careful now, but if I were to eat a scallop and, and something I didn't know or clam chowder, but usually for me, it's two to four hours, I'll start getting nauseated, I'll feel sick to my stomach, and then I will have episodes of vomiting, maybe diarrhea, and that will last for a couple hours and then I'm just completely fine. I mean, it just, just resolves. But so, but there is a spectrum of how early it will come on and how long it can last and how severe the reactions can be. But and diagnostically, it's, it's kind of difficult, right? Because people don't necessarily associate it with something that their kid or whatever ate, you know, four hours ago. Like the idea of, of connecting it with the food that's going in is a little bit challenging, no? Yes, and, and the other thing is there's when you go in to present like the, the allergist office, they, there's, you can't get a, you don't get positive skin tests because it's not the Ig mediated reaction. But you're right. A lot of, usually what happens in the infants is that the parents will say, okay, a fed oat, oat cereal, a rice, and it happened. And they say, oh, it was just, 
something the th second time then the third time they say oh now i started to see a you know correlation of what we fed our child and the, the symptoms because sometimes they get worked up like it's an infection a gastroenteritis mm -hmm. or something else they go to the er they're really sick and they do go to the er and they get worked up like an infection and then they're fine and then they go back home and start the food again and it, it happens all again so yeah you're right it is really it's challenging yeah so let's talk about that skin test though because you really focused on diagnosis and management from what i've read right of food allergies in your practice what were your favorite tools? I mean, we all know, and if you've listened to, to a few of my episodes talking to food allergy doctors, skin tests are not my favorite thing on the planet, nor are they the most accurate, right? So what were your kind of favorite uh, go-to tools in trying to decide what someone needs to not be eating? So I think the foundation of all this, and I think a lot of your speakers would go back to this, is the clinical history. You can, you, we, call, we, want to, we want to test, we want things we can quickly go to and say, okay, there's the answer. But you always have to go back to, to the clinical history because that's going to direct most everything we do. So a real thorough, detailed clinical history with the parent if they're bringing in a child or if it's an older child, adolescent or adult. So we'll spend a lot of time on the history because uh, that will really direct us. I What reactions have you had to what? Exactly. What what type of reactions have had in the past? Do you have are you suspicious of any foods? What it what mm -hmm. were, what was used to treat the reaction? Did you end up with the, in the you know severe? Did you end up anaphylaxis, or was it just a very minimal reaction? Also, trying to weed out could it be an intolerance versus an allergy? Like there there are many intolerance reactions that are not immune based; they're physiologic reactions like lactose intolerance or a reaction to other things like that. In it. The food intolerance thing, you know, people come in and they just say, I've, I've had a reaction to food, and they always assume that it might be a food allergy. But we know that that, that it, you have to sort that out. And it can be frustrating for the patients, but that has to be done because if it's not an allergy, they still are having adverse food reactions, but it's not a classic Ig mediated reaction or or something in that in that realm. So and, and but in terms of testing, so you know, step one test, clinical history. Yeah, yeah. Clin Clinical history by far. And, and coming back to that, if you're not, things aren't going the way you would think they would, is really going back to the history again and say, maybe I left, you know, I just left something out. I didn't ask that. Or the family then comes back and say, oh, I, I really think <coughs> that it is this. And the, you got to listen to the parents because they're, a lot of times they are, they come in and they really, if you look back, they, they really had it all along. It just wasn't completely coming together. Right. So in terms of testing, like, the skin test, well, it, it is still something we use very frequently. And if knowing the limitations, it, if they're if they're negative, if a good skin test is negative, it helps to rule out a food allergy. If it's positive, it's not. So you know, it can be fifty percent be a false positive, and that's that's a problem because then you got people are doing big panels of skin tests or blood tests, and you're then you're starting to restrict foods that don't need to be restricted, and the diet gets drives me crazy limited. when yeah. when allergists will send somebody home with a big list of you can't eat any of these things anymore even though you ate them yesterday and you were fine but now you're allergic to 543 foods and sorry bye and that's it and it just it makes me crazy yeah that and and a lot of times that will happen too with with blood testing we'll get people that come in with these big panels of blood testing even not even ige testing but maybe igg testing which is definitely mm -hmm. fraught with 
not been, it's not valid, it doesn't really help us at all. So those, but you're right, if in allergists, if they're really busy in their office and they're just testing. And or don't might, focus on food allergies, right? It's just not their main shtick. They might, like you said, they might test a whole bunch of foods and then just give you this list and say, I got to move on to the next patient. That That's right. not, that's a, that's a disservice to the family. Well, it just causes patient. so much misinformation and anxiety and quality of life issue, right? So. Exactly. I mean, it's, it, it, I'm on a crusade against skin and blood testing, I think. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you, what were your kind of common misconceptions that you would see in both in your, in your medical practice and what do you see today in your consulting practice, things that you wish that people knew or didn't think or thought or didn't know? I think one of them we may have touched on already, and that is people Every time people come in with any kind of reaction to a food, they just assume right away that it's a food allergy. And it's the same as like a peanut allergy or milk allergy, shellfish allergy. And I think I have to really take the time to then say, okay, let's go through this history. Let's might do some testing, but I got to, I got to really go back and convince them that, Hey, you still have a reaction, but it's not the, you know, a classic food allergy. And that could be a reaction, like I said, to lactose, to other things that are in foods, um, sulfites, toxins, things that we have to work through. And I think that that's a misconception that, you know, it's, it's, you have to, you know, spend time. It's really, if you have the time, you really need to do that. If you, if you can go back in and really, and, and talk to the, the patient and the family about that. Um, other, another misconception would be that food allergies are there forever. And we know, we definitely know that there are certain food food allergies that can be outgrown or patients can develop tolerance to, mainly egg and milk and wheat and soy. Whereas other foods are a lot more uh, difficult to outgrow like peanuts, tree nuts, shellfish, definitely. And that, you know, that was, that's going to be, that's going to be something that I think we just have, you know, again, have to let people know because they they don't, they think, number one, everything's an allergy, but also all allergies are forever, for a lifetime, and they're not going to be able to, to to outgrow those or become tolerant to those. So you've got the F-Pies, if I can, can I just call it that, the F-Pies? Yeah, I, that's what most people know, yeah. <laughs> most people, that's what they call it, most people do, yeah. I've got eosinophilic esophagitis, right? So we both have these kind of random, nobody's ever heard of them. I like to call them food allergic diseases, if you will, just kind of under a big umbrella. The The diagnosis of those things is kind of so out of left field. Very few doctors outside of maybe specifically allergy and immunology are really very familiar with them. And I feel like with anaphylaxis, if it's, you know, traditional anaphylaxis, people kind of get it relatively soon, but in terms of education for pediatricians, family practitioners, first responders, ER docs, if you want to separate them out from first responders, and allergists, where do we kind of have the most work to do, or where could we make the biggest impact in affecting what what the medical practitioners in those silos know about both food allergies and and other food allergic conditions? I think I'll give two. Does that make sense? Like the question? Exactly. Because the, the one I would focus on first was what I've seen with emergency room physicians and acute care facilities, urgent care. Urgent care so type thing. Yeah. When I started, we, we, no one would get, they'd go in and they would, they wouldn't even, they would, 
I don't know if they would even consider anaphylaxis when the history was very clear, and they wouldn't get sent home with uh, like an action plan or an epinephrine auto injector, which oh, here's some Benadryl. We'll watch you for a few hours. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Don't do that. And they wouldn't be (laughs) even there that long. They would maybe send them home after an hour. And I think those, or get even referred to an allergist, that simple, just maybe a referral to an allergist to do some of this stuff. So, but what's happened over the last, I'd say last two decades is that's, that's changed because we've had also doctors in the emergency room arena, plus allergists, plus um, ER physicians have really worked on this at their national meetings and have done in services and things. And so now if I, when I see patients coming out of the ER, I think more more of them do get considered that it could be anaphylaxis. What do we need to do with treatment? And what about epinephrine <laughs> having that? Because you know this is life-saving medicine and then going to an allergist to get tested and evaluated. So that's one side. I think that I've, I've been pleased to see that change in our time. On the other hand, I think it's dealing with the primary care arena, like you said, pediatricians, family docs, uh, internal medicine docs that may not have that the time to do it or the interest or whatever. But the guidelines, and I'll use the guidelines that have come in terms of prevention of food allergy. I know you're familiar with these, like early introduction of foods to infants who are at high risk, eczema patients and uh, and such, or egg allergy patients. They trying to get those foods like peanut and egg and milk introduced in that window of time to hopefully prevent sensitization and ultimately real allergy to those foods. And we know that those guidelines, and they've been out for a while, you go back and it's, they're just not being followed. And I was recently reviewing a chapter on a book we're working with and some of the dietitians were have done even more. They've really been great resources to us that have interest in food allergy. They have, they've really done a lot of these studies looking at what what's happening in the primary care offices. They're not really following these and why is it? Because the information has been funneling down. I just don't know that they have the time and energy to do it, but I think it will get there. It's just, this is the, what the ER docs were many years ago is what we're seeing now with the, the early introduction of, of foods that could prevent food allergy. And I'm not, this is such a hot area right now, as you know. Yeah. And so, I mean, on the anaphylaxis side, I agree. Like when, when I was going through my diagnosis for the eosinophilic esophagitis, I mean, they, they tested me for MS, for Parkinson's. I mean, all sorts of neurological stuff because I couldn't always swallow, right? But nobody ever brought up food stuff, despite the fact that I already had anaphylactic food allergies. Wow. Interesting, right? I mean, yeah. like, and I don't mean to roll any doctors. So sorry, docs in my life who, who might be listening, it, but it, it's an education thing, right? Did you have a, were you seeing an, were you seeing an allergist at the time too? It, or were they the one that, okay. Cause the well, it didn't occur to me, right? Like, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I didn't know EOE was a thing. And I don't mean yeah. to, I don't mean to roll back into that now, but just from an education of different types of doctors um, and, you know, anaphylaxis is one thing, but there's plenty of other things on the side of anaphylaxis, which are, you know, related to um, food reactions in the body, if you will. And I just think it's interesting. Um, you know, we all go to our primary care physicians to start things, right? I and mean, maybe not everybody, but you don't really know what specialist to go to uh, when something is happening. I think that the eosinophilic esophagitis arena is tough because you have we have patients that we that that have the condition. They might have reflux with it, so those can mm-hmm. go hand in hand. And then 
we know that foods are probably playing a role, but we don't know. We're not always able to identify yeah. that with testing. That's where it gets really frustrating. Really tricky, and, right? And yeah. sometimes we just do empiric elimination diets or, you know, small ones. And we do, we treat the reflux and we hope that, that there can be some resolution and that they have to do the Well, if you can figure out what's going on in the first place, right? So interesting. Yeah. All right. So yeah. what's next, do you think, in the world of food allergy research and kind of treatment and moving forward? What's the most exciting, like on the horizon stuff that you're seeing? Okay. So the, the first would be the oral immunotherapy the whole field, and this is being done in private practice and out, I'm, I'm sorry, allergy practice. Uh, it's being done in academic centers, in, in large multi-center studies, and trying to find the way to develop tolerance. It's not going to be a cure for food allergy, but developing a safe way to induce tolerance to say peanut, milk, egg, whatever food there is going to be in the protocol. This has come a long way in the last 10 years. And, and there's, there's large groups of practices doing it around the country. And there's also research groups, including Dr. Shisher, uh, that whole group he's in, the, the COFAR group. They're really looking to try to find what is the safest protocol? What, how can we get people to a maintenance dose and to prevent if they do have an accidental ingestion, they won't have a severe reaction. They got it, but it's, it's, it's labor intensive. It's, you know, it's, there's a lot of work to get there and the patient has to continue on the treatment. There's also um, therapies that, that have been developed, FDA approved a therapy for peanut allergy that can be used with a protocol. And there'll be more of that, I think that'll come along. But I think the exciting piece is that they're, they're working on protocols to do multiple foods and combining some biologic agents uh, that, that can be used in conjunction with the, the desensitization protocol in hopes of, of being more efficient in uh, producing that tolerance. So that there's some NIH study right now that has not been released yet, but that there's going to be more of that happening. Um, yeah, you took the next question out of my mouth, right? Like when you've got something like OIT, it's great when you've got a single allergy and it happens to be something that somebody's offering OIT for, but what about the, however the percentage works of people who have multiples and, you know, how do you kind of get rid of that? And at what point do we stop or do we focusing treatment research on individual allergens rather than on the IgE response in the body that would potentially, you know, address any allergen, right? And that's sort of the thought, I think, behind doing the biologic agents, which do work on, just like for asthma, we have the biologic agents of the same, they're pretty much the same biologics that are used for eczema and asthma. They can be used in these trials for oral immunotherapy. And you're right, that's going to the, the, the basic um, underlying mechanism part of it. And then the foods, it, unless, you know, some people do come in and say, I just have peanut allergy, but a lot of people but... have multiples and you'd be nice to have a way to do multiple. And some of those foods maybe would cross react with other allergens. You can get, get more bang for your buck kind of thing there. Right. The right so how can... Area, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. The other area, this is different. You may want to bring me back to this, is, is the diagnostic piece. I think this is an area where research is still pushing and pushing and pushing to come up with better diagnostics to the component testing for like peanut and tree nuts and, and egg. And they, they're trying to develop better ways to have the 
the allergen be identified by the testing so that you can say, oh, man, this one is very reliable to say that person could, could be an anaphylactic patient. That patient probably isn't or may not have a reaction at all. They're reacting under the test because they have another type of allergy. So this is something I'm really interested in. This is one of the areas you asked me at the very beginning. Would I be interested in looking at my own business? Well, these are things I would be willing to consult on because I would have the clinical expertise to tie that together. But I don't, you know, I don't know yet. I don't have any of those yet, but those are, those are out there. And I know their companies are really searching hard for ways to, uh, you know, to have better diagnostic tests that are more sensitive and specific and have a good positive predictive value. I think that that would be so incredibly valuable. I think that there are so many people out there who have tested positive for something or other, have avoided that food for however long, and have really never had a reaction to it. I mean, it's anecdotal on my part, but I hear that so often. And, you know, just the quality of life change it would be to be able to not have that happen, you know, would be so great. But oh, yeah, definitely. Any researchers that are out there and listening, please find that fix our diagnostics for food allergies. All right. How can people find you and connect with you online? The, my main area I have, the two main areas that I have been involved with are the LinkedIn uh, website and then Twitter and Twitter. Both of those are are probably my, I do not have a website and I haven't gone that route yet. Um, I also have just a regular, regular email. Most, you know, most people would contact me that way. Um, uh, so th- those are the, the main areas. All right. And then obviously, obviously the people I've worked with at AFA, I call it's Asthma Allergy Foundation of America, AFA and FAIR. They're both, I've had long relationships with them. I know all the people who work there and I'm really grateful that I do have those groups to work with because they've helped me get my, my feet on the ground with my business. Perfect. All right. So then you're going to give us your two truths and a lie. So in no particular order and don't tell us which one's not true. Three facts about yourself. Okay. I am one of 11 children in my family. Uh, My favorite sports football team is the LSU Tigers. And I won a karaoke contest at our company Christmas party. I like it. How was that karaoke contest judged? Mm-hmm. Actually, we had a panel of judges. My wife was one of the judges, so <laughs> you can imagine how, how that how that might have affected it. Well, Dr. John James, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it, listeners. If you ever want to know which of those facts is not so factual, let us know in the comments on your favorite social media or podcast platform. And as always, thanks for being here. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.